You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. Hey, so I'm struggling with my voice a little bit. I feel better than I sound. But, so I'm just telling you right now, uh, so I'm going to give this one everything I have because I don't know what's happening at 1130. It might be Video Bob. Video Bob is a fantastic, he's a good guy. He's got boundless energy. He can just preach over and over again. doesn't get tired. He's not like me at all. And, um, but anyway, so I'm going to give it all I've got. If you would be into it, even though I'm struggling a little bit, can we, can we do that? We're just, all right. So. <clears throat> That's my one cough. All right, here we go. <clears throat> so uh, a while back, I was speaking at this event um, in Orlando. I was hosting uh, this event. I do that from time to time. I host these events for pastors, and we have guys from all over the country that come in. And um, because of the nature of it over these two days, uh, I ate every meal at the same little restaurant in the hotel, um, and, and I also ate there because the kids ate free. That was one of their things. So I was like, guys, you're going to love this place. It's like, it's okay. We're going to eat it again. You order something else. And um, so anyway, the last day that we're there, um, now I had been ordering, um, I, I'm a huge fan of Coke Zero, and um, so I had ordered Coke Zero every day that I was there. And um, the last day I get there, and we had the same server every time uh, every day that we were at this for this event. And so <clears throat> I had ordered, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of Coke Zero. I believe Coke Zero is a little taste of what heaven is going to be like. Because it's like, it's just like Coke, but no calories. I, I'm going to get to heaven, man. And seriously, I'm going to bite into a Twinkie Zero. And I'm going to have French fries Zero and wash it down with milkshake Zero. And um, it's going to happen. Anyway, I digress. And so um, anyway, all week we had the same server, super nice guy. He knew once I walked in, he brought me the Coke Zero. And so then there was a new server the last day that I was there. So he's like, hey, what would you like to drink? I said, oh, I'll have a Coke Zero. And he says, oh, we don't serve Coke Zero here. And I was like, what? And so then I explained to him the other guy. And the other guy, would, he, was, um, he understood my needs before even I had requested. So, and, and he's like, sir, I don't know what to tell you. We don't have Coke Zero on the property. And I said, so, okay, what have I been drinking all week? And I, because here's the thing, the day before I had had uh, dinner with a friend of mine and I was, both of us ordered a Coke Zero and the guy brought, and we were like, this is the best Coke Zero that we've ever, I mean, it tastes exactly like regular Coke but with none of the sugar or calories, you know, and uh, my throat did not like that. And, um, and so little did I know I was like drinking 93 octane um, without even knowing it. And, and I don't know if you've ever had that, that moment where you're trying to do the right thing and then you get in trouble for doing the right thing. You ever have a moment like this? It's, it's so frustrating. And the reality is, is that in the fallen world in which we live, sometimes doing the right thing has consequences. And the, the thing we've got to decide is, is that are we still going to do the right thing? Are we still going to honor God in, in the face of a difficulty or trial, um, even if 
there's consequences for continuing to do what's right. And that's really at the heart of the story that we're going to look at today. Now, before we get going, I've got to give you a little bit of background because we're going to be talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in prison. And to explain why John the Baptist is in prison, I've got to give you a little bit of a family tree as to who got into power and all that. And it is a little bit involved. But uh, how many of you are fans of the Marvel movies? Can I ask? Okay, very good. All right. So if you can follow what's going on in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you can easily follow what's going on in the Bible. Because if I had to tell you to explain who this is, okay, who's this? Who, who knows? You can just shout it. It's okay. Who's, who is it? I asked her. You can just say it. Gamora, very good. That's right. Give, let's give a round of applause. Thank you very much. Now, this is Gamora, and you know, and, 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 and her current situation is kind of complicated, right? Because if you don't know, Gamora is the daughter of Thanos. Well, she's not actually the daughter of Thanos. She was just adopted by Thanos after Thanos killed her parents and murdered half the people on her planet. Um, but then she left Thanos and, and, and joined up with the Guardians of the Galaxy and became Star-Lord's girlfriend. But unfortunately, Gamora died, right? And by the way, spoiler alert, but you've had like five years to watch these movies, so work it out, all right? So, but you know, Gamora dies when Thanos sacrifices her with Red Skull uh, to get the Soul Stone, but 2014, Gamora comes into our lives in Endgame when the Avengers pull off the time heist. They bring the 2014 Gamora, and she doesn't even know that she's part of the Guardians of the Galaxy. She doesn't know that she's Star-Lord's girl because she hasn't experienced anything that real time or our Gamora has experienced before she died. Now, after all of that, and, and, and then she disappears, and we don't know where she is right now. Now, if you have just followed all of that, first, don't tell people you don't watch soap operas because that is a telenovela, all right? <laughs> what you just heard, that is a novela in, in every sense of the word. And then, and we can take more down, by the way. Um, but, uh, so, and then you can easily understand. So, John the Baptist is in prison. Why? Because there's a guy named Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the guy who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. This guy was a lunatic. Um, Herod the Great eventually dies, and the Caesar at the time, the ruler of Rome, allows the family of Herod to rule Israel. So they divide up Israel. So, uh, and you'll see uh, here that he has a son named Philip who rules the northeast area of, um, uh, of uh, Israel. So this is kind of, this is the Sea of Galilee right here. And so he takes this whole area that is kind of in this, this brownish uh, thing. And then now Philip has a wife uh, whose name is Herodias. And um, by the, oh, I have to tell you this, by the way, Herodias also happened to be Philip's niece. So just to make it creepy, um, Philip is married to Herodias, who is also his niece. Herodias is the daughter of Aristobulus IV, who was the oldest son of Herod. Now, Aristobulus was going to take over all of this, and he was sent to Rome to learn at the um, emperor's the school of what's called the School of Augustus, 
And so he was going to come back and then be the ruler of this whole thing when his dad, Herod the Great, died. Unfortunately, Herod the Great suspected him of treason and ended up having him murdered. Instead of just like, hey, what's going on with you? No, just it's over. It's done. So Herodias is with Philip. So she's got no dad. So she decides to marry um, her uncle. And she's living up here in the area of, um, uh, or I'm sorry, she's married to, um, to Philip. And um, <coughs> so then they, she decides to leave her husband slash uncle and marry this guy named, uh, this guy named Antipas. Uh, Antipas was also her uncle. I mean, it's just like, apparently she did not know a lot of people <laughs> because she's like keeping all of her marriage choices within her family. And, um, and so then, now he's uh, in this other area. This is where um, Antipas is ruling. So Philip is ruling over here, kind of one part of the Sea of Galilee. And then um, Antipas is ruling over here, kind of this area near the Dead Sea and this area by Galilee. Now here is where most of the ministry of Jesus takes place. So about 90% of the miracles that Jesus does is in the area of Galilee. Jerusalem, just for those of you that want to understand geography, Jerusalem is right about here. This is the Dead Sea, and uh, Jordan River is kind of what connects everything. So, um, now, here's what John the Baptist had to say about the relationship, and this is what got him into some trouble. This is what it says in Matthew 14. Herod, and that is Antipas, had, uh, had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife, Herodias, the former wife of Herod's brother, Philip. And he had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of a riot because all the people believed John was a prophet. Now, and this is where it gets a little bit complicated, as if it wasn't already complicated. One guy marrying his niece, then divorcing, and then another guy marrying the same niece. So to marry Herodias, Antipas had to divorce his wife. His wife was the daughter of King Aretas. The, the, um, can you go back to the, um, the map? So this area right um, o o over here, what, see it says Nabatea? So this whole area right here is what's called the kingdom of the Nabataeans. Uh, the Nabataeans, um, it's kind of modern day Jordan and um, their capital was uh, Petra. And once again, people would, they, they would marry daughters and, um, you know, kings would send um, their daughters to marry the son of another king and vice versa so that there would be peace. So the king, Aretas, who's the king of the Nabataeans, sends his daughter to Antipas so that there's peace between the Herods and the Nabataeans. Uh, the capital of the, this area of the, uh, the, the Nabataean kingdom is Petra, which if you've uh, ever seen this, this is in, um, this temple is in uh, Petra. I actually have a picture of my wife and I, I should have brought it. I have a picture of my wife and I standing in the door right here. And um, anyway, tons of fun. It was several miles of walking. So if you don't like walking, just skip this one. Um, but anyway, Aretas was so enraged that, that Antipas had divorced his daughter, that he marched in uh, to Israel 
and destroyed most of Herod's army and would have killed Antipas as well had the Roman army not intervened. So this was becoming, this whole thing was an international crisis. So John the Baptist speaks out about this. And, and then John gets arrested. Antipas has John arrested to garner favor with his wife slash niece, Herodias. Now, so if you're keeping score at home, we've got two brothers who married the same niece and the only one getting punished is the man of God who said that they shouldn't do that, okay? Now, <coughs> scholars say that John was in prison for about 10 months. And I can only imagine what John was thinking when he gets in prison. And it's like day one. He's like, Jesus is going to bust me out of here. And he's telling the guards. He's telling, you know, maybe Antipas goes to see him. He's like, uh, listen up, Mr. Nice Romancer. Um, Jesus has turned water into wine. He's going to turn you into matzo ball soup. So get ready. And, uh, you know, day two, it's like, look, he's on his way. You know AM traffic around here. You know, we got to just wait. I'll be out of here by lunchtime. After a month, he's starting to worry. After three months, he's depressed. After six months, he's doing what we all do. He's trying to figure out what have I done wrong? And why are things not going out, going my way, even though I know I did the right thing? After 10 months, he gets some of his disciples, people that were close to him, and he sends them on a mission to find Jesus and deliver a message. And the message that he gives to Jesus is the same thing that we struggle with when we're waiting on God to do something, especially if we've been doing the right thing and we've been waiting for the right thing uh, to happen, the thing that we've been waiting on God to do. And listen, if you're in the season of waiting, this is a powerful message for us. Because just because you don't see God working doesn't mean that he isn't working. It just means that we don't see it. And these moments of waiting are where trust is built and where faith in God is established because we can talk about trust, we can talk about faith all day long, but our faith in God is really seen by our trust in him when we're waiting on him to work. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what we read. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that we're going to look at when, it, when faith doesn't make sense, like we see with John here. But the first thing that we've got to realize is when we're in those moments, number one, if you're a note taker, is that I need to suspend my expectations. Um, now, this is kind of a strange conversation. And if you, uh, he's saying, do we look for someone? Are you the person we're looking for or do we look for somebody else? And then Jesus says something that sounds so cryptic. And I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you've, you've been in a conversation with a, uh, maybe two other people and um, you don't, you're speaking the same language, but you have no idea what's going on. And I had that a few years ago. I was in a meeting with two architects and the two architects were just uh, meeting that in that meeting. And um, they were talking, arch you know, because every, every field has their own lingo. And they were like, oh, do you prefer CAD or do you use pencils? 
or do you go by hand? And, uh, and then what kind of pencils do you use? And apparently these are, these are conversations that architect ha architects have. They talk about pencils. And, um, and I, you know, I don't know what to say. So I'm like, oh, you know, I appreciate both forms. And uh, as far as pencils, I'm like a number two man myself. And, uh, and I, but you know, that's a, I was a student. I was a student of Mike Brady. Are you familiar with him? He was an architect. Um, I guess not a lot of Brady Bunch fans in the house. So uh, anyway, <clears throat> Mike Brady was a brilliant architect. You know how, how I know that? Because if you look at this, the outside of the Brady house, it's a one-story house. And if you go inside the Brady house, there's an upstairs and a downstairs. That's how you know he was a good architect. All right? But no, I didn't say anything because I was totally clueless and I hadn't gone to school for that. And, and here's what happens. Sometimes we read these verses and we're like, what in the world? Are you the coming one or do we look for someone else? And then Jesus says something. And what Jesus is doing is the Jews had a system of teaching and learning that was called remiz. Uh, remiz is a Hebrew word that means hint. And uh, this is why Jesus asked so many questions. And this is just a rabbinic way of teaching where you would... Um, someone would ask a rabbi a question and then he would answer with another question, but the answer to that question was the answer. So it would be something like, uh, you know, what color is the sky? And then the rabbi would say, well, you know, roses are red. And like, oh, okay, I get it. And, uh, and so what would happen is too that the remiz could also be they would quote a verse. And so the answer to the question was the verse before it or the verse after it. This is why, and, and if you don't understand this, sometimes reading the Gospels can be kind of strange because Jesus is having a conversation with the religious leaders and then it's like Jesus says something and then it says, and then they pick up stones to kill him. And it's like, wow, these guys are on edge. And, um, but it's because we don't understand the remiz. And uh, he was saying something against them. So I'll give you one. And uh, this is in Matthew chapter 21. So <clears throat> this is when um, at the, the tri uh, Palm Sunday triumphal entry, Jesus is coming into town and people are claiming that he's the Messiah. It says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you ever read out of the mouth, out of, the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Now, that seems harmless enough until you understand remiz. And what is it that Jesus is saying? So Jesus is quoting from Psalm 8. So look at, look at what Psalm 8 says. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that, they, that you may silence the enemy and the Avenger. So when Jesus said, hey, what are these people saying? And hey, haven't you heard that out of the mouth of babes, you've, you've perfected babes? You've perfected praise, and then he says, so that you may silence your enemies. So what is Jesus basically saying to them? Shut up. And that's why they get upset, is that Jesus is using this like Bible kung fu on them, and they're like, oh, it's so aggravating when he does that. And so now back to our question here. Jesus is saying, uh, John is saying, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah, or do we look for somebody else? And so Jesus quotes, he links these two verses, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Passages that refer to the Messiah being the coming one. This is how you would know. And Isaiah 61 is the verse that Jesus used when he entered ministry. He began his ministry. He went to the synagogue and he read from Isaiah 61. And they said, this is all fulfilled in your hearing. Here's what Isaiah 61 says. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me 
because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, Jesus quotes from this verse when he's talking to John. He says, here's what I want you to tell John. Tell John that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and don't be offended because of me. What does he leave out? He leaves out the, the releasing of the prisoners. So what is he telling John? You're not getting out of jail, and don't be offended, and don't, don't be uh, stumbled because I'm not doing the thing that you want me to do. You see, what Jesus is telling him, and in turn, what Jesus is telling us is, well, we still follow even if he doesn't meet all of our expectations. And this is the challenge that we always have, is that are we going to follow Jesus and trust him, or are we only going to follow him if he does exactly what it is that we want? Because if we only follow him because he's going to do exactly what we want, then we're not really following Jesus, we're following the result. And that's just treating God like a vending machine where I prayed, I read the Bible, I gave, I served, and now I put my coins in, I press the button, and somehow God owes me. And my friend, that's not the way it works. And if we think that's the way it works, we are going to be very, very disappointed in this life. And here's the challenge. <clears throat> because, and we don't say this, but sometimes in our heart we think this, that we know as much as God does. And we have such a limited perspective that there's rarely a moment that we see everything. And that's why we do dumb things. And it's, but it's because we think that we see everything. Um, it took my wife and I uh, 10 years to have our first child. And that in and of itself is, is a bit of a challenge, trying to figure out why it's not working and what we're doing wrong. And uh, then going to doctors and like, am I okay? Is she okay? You know, all of that kind of stuff. But I remember the day that my daughter Mia was coming into the world and we had gone to the hospital. Hang on one second. Well, water's really good. You should get yourself some. All right. Um, so a friend of ours was there and then I was going to go in to where the little, you know, where she was going to give birth. And they make me put on basically like an astronaut suit. And it's like, you know, I'm not delivering this child. I'm just going to be there. But anyway, um, they're like, how do you feel? My friend says, how do you feel? And I said, uh, like vomiting. I was so nervous. And uh, in fact, um, one of the nurses was like, this guy's not doing well. Like my wife is giving birth and there's a nurse that has to tend to me during this. And they're like, here's a chair, here's a bag, breathe into the bag. I, I was so nervous. And, um, but then Mia was born and it was, it was so amazing. It was one of the most important moments of my life. And when she was born, I remember that I stayed with her while the doctors were taking care of my wife. And she was just a few minutes old. And I remember this moment where she grabbed my finger. And, uh, and man, I'm crying because we had waited so long and we weren't even sure if we were going to be able to have kids. And, um, and so then there's this guy next to me. He comes in. And his wife had just had a baby uh, not long before. And um, we got to talking and it was his third child. And he congratulates me, and he's like, man, having kids is the most important thing that can happen to you. So amazing. And he's telling me all this stuff about being a dad, and I'm just like soaking in this guy's wisdom. And then that guy's mom comes in and congratulates him and all that, and he says to her, man, I, I, mom, I'm so glad you're here. I need to go get a meatball sub. I'll be right back. 
and leaves. And I'm like, what? You just had a child. You told me it's the most important thing in your life. And this is the, you're leaving your daughter to hang out with Jimmy John? Like, it just did not make any sense. And, and, and listen, and here is, I think about this probably more than I should. But I'm telling you, um, that sometimes we think that what we're asking for is the most important thing. God, if you understood my situation, and God is like, you're asking for a meatball sub. Like, you need to stay where you're at, just as a more, no, 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 it's a meatball sub. And I'm telling you, and this is the, this is the challenge of not having all the information. Um, uh, a, a, a pastor that I know, he, he says it this way. He says, if we knew what God knew, we would answer our prayers in the exact same way that he does. Let me say it again, because some of us went to public school, um, like me, and... Uh, I know, that's sad. Um, but listen, if we knew what God knew, we would answer our prayers the same way that he does. The problem is we don't know what God knows. And the gap between the end of our knowledge and the beginning of the wisdom of God is where trust and faith have to fit in. And that's the challenge that John faces. And so we have to suspend our expectations when, in the moments when faith doesn't make sense. Well, here's what happens. Verse 7. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man in soft garments? Indeed, those who are in soft garments, who wear soft clothing, are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you that among those born of women, there is not arisen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But what shall I like in this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Now pause there and give me your attention if you don't mind. Uh, second thing I want you to note <clears throat> and that is that when faith doesn't make sense, I need to embrace my convictions. Now, let me explain this passage. It's one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament um, because we don't understand the culture. When Jesus says in verse 11 that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force, let me explain what that means. He's not talking about physical violence. Um, he's talking about, I mean, let me explain it this way. Think about how you react to Bible teaching. Sometimes you hear Bible teaching, you're like, oh, wow, that's so nice. Oh, that made me feel good. And then we leave and nothing changes. And then there's moments when we hear Bible teaching and something happens inside of us. And there is like a chain reaction of events, like these little explosions that happen internally. And then change starts happening and the transformation that God starts doing internally is almost violent in nature. 
In fact, that's why another translation says it this way. You'll see it on the screen. And from uh, the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. You see, the point that Jesus is making is that the kingdom of God moves when people are active, not passive. That's why it's not a call to physical violence. Instead, it's a call to allow the kingdom of God to grab you. Have you ever had this moment? Well, let me explain. When Mia was little, um, we were having dinner. It was just the three of us back then. And Mia started choking on something that she was eating. I jumped up to help. I grabbed her out of the high chair and I did the thing that I learned. You know, you turn her on, um, on your hand and then you start patting her back. But I was just, I mean, well, let me do this with my, my Bible. I, I, I grabbed her and I was going like this. I was so scared. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to hurt her. So I was like, and my wife jumps out. She's like, will you stop? And she, she get, takes me and she's like, <laughs> boom, whatever projectile shot across the room. And, and my daughter was breathing again. And I was like, yeah, I, I was getting there. And, uh, and, and, and listen, the way that what's it, that little Heimlich thing, right? That wasn't like a little gentle hug. It was an almost violent thing because you're trying to save someone's life. And listen, you come to know Jesus, and there's almost this, uh, this aggressive 180 that happens because you start embracing the principles of God, and things start changing, and you look back over six months, a year, two years, and you're like, man, I'm a totally different person than I was then. And sometimes it was very gradual, and sometimes it was like this tectonic shift that took place. It wasn't this pat, little gentle pat on the back. That's how the kingdom of God works. That's how it worked in John the Baptist's life. John the Baptist was the son of a priest named Zechariah. And you know what happened when your um, dad was a priest, which meant his, his dad was a priest and his dad was a priest and his dad was a priest and his dad was a priest. You know what that meant? You were gonna become a priest. But the kingdom of God got a hold of him and he ended up in the wilderness wearing camel's hair, preaching that the Messiah was coming and that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The kingdom of God grabbed him and transformed his life in, in an almost violent, jarring kind of way because that's what the kingdom of God does. We should be able to look back and see that our life is radically different as we walk with Jesus because the more that we apply the word of God to our lives, the more that we change. And that's why uh, Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born. And you know what's interesting to me? That didn't start when John entered ministry. That started before he was born when the angel tells Zechariah that he's going to have a son. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 1. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. Uh, your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you'll call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. You see, it is, um, I want you to think about that. I mean, <clears throat> how do you handle that kind of news? You're gonna, that you and your wife are gonna get, have, give birth to this child and he's gonna be, according to Jesus, the greatest person who's ever been born. You see, here's what I think. The angel told his parents told Zechariah and Elizabeth that their child would be great. And I believe that that story was relayed to John. 
as he was growing up. God has great plans for you. God is gonna do great things. The angel appeared to us and told us, you are gonna be great in the sight of the Lord. You know what happens when you get told that? You start to believe it, that you were born with great purpose. Uh, and <clears throat> when I was seven years old, my dad took me to Meadow Glen Mall in uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, which is where I, I, I spent my elementary school years. And there was a shoe store there in the mall that sold these shoes called kangaroos. Anybody remember kangaroos? Yeah, kangaroos were awesome because they had a little zipper on the side and you could put, you know, whatever. I, I, you could fit like a quarter or, or whatever. You couldn't fit like a cell phone. Well, not that those existed, but. Um, and so, uh, so we went to this shoe store because my dad was gonna buy me a pair of kangaroos. And my dad had this friend named Russell who worked at the shoe store and he was really tall and for some reason, and remember, I grew up in Boston, so for some reason, I thought Russell was Bill Russell. Now, just so you don't know, Bill Russell just died a couple weeks ago. Bill Russell won 11 NBA championships with the Boston Celtics. As, as far as I'm concerned, he's the greatest basketball player of all time. And um, now, I thought, I don't know why I thought Bill Russell, who played for the Celtics, was now working at a shoe store, but when you're seven, you don't really have an understanding of reality. And so, my, he and my dad were talking about training athletes. And at one point in the conversation, and I still remember this so vividly, um, he's, he was helping me put my kangaroos on, and, uh, and he stands up, and Russell points at me, and he says, you see this little man? He says, with the right training, I could turn him into an NBA star. Now, once again, I thought this was the greatest basketball player of all time telling me that he could turn me into an NBA star, and it affected me. I started playing basketball. I'm a I've been a baseball guy my whole life, but I started playing basketball all the time. Um, when I was after that, when I was nine, I joined a basketball league. Um, and it wasn't because basketball was my favorite sport, even though I, I grew up in Boston in the Larry Bird era, and uh, when the Celtics were fantastic in that time in the 80s. Um, but it was all because the guy that I thought was the greatest basketball player of all time told me that I could be great. Imagine the disappointment when I found out he was just a shoe salesman, but that's a different story. But the point is this, is that maybe John's greatness started with parents who spoke words of life into him, and when they heard it so many times, they started to believe it. And it really starts to challenge us. I mean, what, what could happen in our kids' lives if we started telling them that they were created by God and put on this planet for a purpose? You know what would happen? They'd start to believe it. And here's why they'd start to believe it, because it's true. And listen, and it's true for you as well. You know what I love about Jesus saying that John was the greatest man ever? John was just a regular guy. John was not, it wasn't like John got bit by a radioactive spider, and that's why he was the greatest. John took the super soldier serum. That's why he was the greatest. No, John was just this regular guy who accepted the call of God in his life and allowed God to transform his life in such a way that you cannot tell the story of Jesus without telling the story of John. See, the Gospels, all four Gospels focus on different stories in Jesus' life, but what I love is that all four Gospels, at the very beginning, it all starts like this. This is the Gospel of Jesus. Oh, by the way, it all starts with this guy named John. And that, to me, is so powerful, and it gives us hope. It shows us that we can each live a life of greatness if we submit ourselves to what God wants to do in our lives and walk in it. Well, one last thing, and then we're done. 
pardon me, in uh, verse 25. It says, at that time, Jesus answered and said, Father, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and I revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Last thing I want to tell you, and then we're done, <clears throat> is that I need to find my rest. This is a beautiful passage, but we really understand the beauty when we really see what Jesus is actually saying, because the first question is, what's a yoke? The second question is, why are these people burdened? The third question is, why are, is what Jesus is offering so different than what they had been experiencing? So a yoke in that culture was something that you put on a pair of animals so that they could either carry a heavy load or they could plow a field. The idea is, is that you kept um, these animals in pairs and on the yoke because it would keep them going in the same direction. Now, this, got, this idea was taken in a spiritual sense to talk about how rabbis taught their students. And so a rabbi would talk about his interpretations of the law as his yoke. And it was basically he was tying to, um, his, the, the rabbi was tying his interpretations to the students so that they could, once again, in, in a similar way, live the same way. And so the, the rabbi's yoke was his interpretations of the law. And because the law of Moses contains 613 laws, he would have to explain them uh, in a way that honored God the most. So because there was all kinds of variation, because when the Bible says to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, what does that mean? Well, it means not working. Okay, but then what constitutes work? And so the rabbi, the rabbi that you decided to follow would give his yoke. He would give his interpretation of the law. He would say, this is what it means to work and this is what it means to rest. So when the rabbi would teach you, he would teach you how to pray and when to pray. He would teach you how to fast and when to fast. He would teach you how to keep Sabbath or Shabbat and how to rest on Shabbat. And the religious leaders in that day made their yoke, the, their interpretation of the law so heavy it was impossible to keep. In fact, when we get to Matthew chapter 23, you'll see it on the screen. Here's Jesus' indictment of the religious leaders. He says, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Now, here's the thing that we miss, and this is huge. Sometimes we think that the commands of God are what are causing us to miss out on everything that we want to see happen. But I want to tell you something, the opposite is true. Walking with God and obeying God is the greatest source of joy in your life. Because everything good in your life, whether you realize it or not, has come from the blessing and grace of God in your life. That's why in, in Psalm 19, um, it says it this way, you'll see it. He says, the commands of the Lord are right bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. What a beautiful promise that following God's commands brings joy and it brings wisdom for living this life. And if you've been around Calvary for any length of time, you know that this is something that I, I talk about regularly. That the thing that should mark us as different in this world is the joy 
that we have. Because I'm telling you, if we don't have real joy, then I don't think we're doing it right because Christians should be the most joy-filled people in the world. And when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, this is what he's saying. He's saying, my teaching isn't going to weigh you down, it's going to set you free. Does that mean that his teachings are always simple to accomplish? No. Think about it. When Peter says to Jesus, and we'll see it in a future message, he says, hey, when my, when my brother sins against me, how, often, how many times do I need to forgive him? Maybe like seven times? Jesus is like, no, 70 times seven. It's like, you keep forgiving. Is that easy? No, it's not easy. It's not simple. But listen, when you do it, it will set you free because people who, forgi- who forgive are people who are filled with joy is when Jesus says, I want you to love one another the way I've loved you. Is that simple? No, it's not simple. But ask any married couple who live like this if their marriage is filled with joy and they'll tell you yes. Because loving the way he loved us will set you free from expectations. And when two people decide to live for the other person's joy, they find overwhelming joy themselves. And listen, some of us are burned out because we have been carrying these heavy burdens simply because we haven't committed ourselves to living life the Jesus way. And that's the invitation that Jesus is giving us. That even when we do the right thing and we don't get the result that we want, we can still have joy. That's why I think one of the most powerful verses in the Bible when it comes to faith is in Daniel chapter three, when there's these three Hebrew kids, teenagers, named Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael are thrown into a fiery furnace. You probably know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they're going to get thrown into a fiery furnace and they won't because they will not bow down to an idol. And they say something that reveals the kind of faith that we all want to have. Not just a faith that wants the goodies from God, but it's a faith that has experienced God, that has a wisdom and a weight to it and knows that the only way that life really works is when we trust God, even when we don't see the immediate benefit. You see, it says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. And look what it says, but if not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. But if not, that is the kind of faith that is unshakable. And that is the only kind of faith that will stand against the pain of this world. But see, that kind of faith, a but if not faith, is only seen in the moments when things aren't perfect. Listen, living with joy doesn't mean that life is perfect, but what it means is what's happening in me is greater than what's happening around me. And see, the moments when we're standing before the trial and we can say, hey, I know that God can deliver us, but even if not, we will not let this break our faith and break our trust in you. And my friends, that is where an unshakable faith is born. When we decide that we're gonna trust God anyway, and know that he's working even when we can't see it. Let's pray together. And Lord, we wanna thank you so much. Thank you that even in difficult seasons, you're with us. Even when we don't see it, 
you're working. And Lord, our prayer is that we would be a people who are faithful, that we would be men and women like John the Baptist, living lives of greatness because we've embraced the call that you've placed on our lives and we're living your way filled with joy. We thank you for it, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.